0: Welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. So today we are going to dive into organ meat. Now we talked about this here and there on previous episodes, but it's been a while. And since I think my initial episode on organ meats, I've been playing around with some different options and trying a few things. But I'm needing a little bit more inspiration and a few more ideas. So I am so excited to have joining me today, James Berry. He has spent over 17 years in the culinary field. He started as a private chef to celebrities. And now he is into the world of regenerative ag and has made a really revolutionary functional food product that he's going to share with us today. He's also a published cookbook author. He has lots of ideas for home cooks like you and I and some really great thoughts on organ meats, why we need them, and how to create, creatively incorporate them into our diet. So welcome, James. I am so excited for this conversation.
1: I am as well. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to turn yes. awful into Every time I even delicious. say that word,
0: I'm like, oh, I wish we could pronounce it differently because it's not, it's not great, right, with the <laughs> awful. Awful yeah, right? sounds better. Awful. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, you know where the name, they think the name comes from, is when you go to butcher an animal, You splice down the abdomen and it's the parts that fall off. So they think that's sort of awful. That's fascinating. Okay.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. So before we get into all the the nitty-gritty, can you just give us a little little bit more background on yourself? And also I'm really curious how you became so passionate about this topic.
1: I know, right? I I did not grow up eating organ meats. I grew up in a household that we knew we knew dinner was ready because the smoke detector went off. Like that (laughs) that was my household, you know, frozen peas. Some kind of starch, like a potato, baked potato, yes. and then meat, shake and bake was actually we did the shake
0: and bake, yep, and rice and all that? the boxes and yep, yep, yep.
1: <laughs> oh my, yeah. So we all have to come from somewhere, but I, I really loved cooking from about seven years on, and I had a neighbor that was just a home gourmet cook, and he, I got exposed to a lot of stuff from him, and. Then I I took a culinary class in junior high school that really I just fell in love with. But I was I was a real picky eater. So it's kind of funny. I would learn these recipes and then I would come home so Mm. excited to make them, but I wouldn't eat them because I was such a picky eater. So I remember like I made a tostada for my parents. And I think I only learned this about a year ago as I realized, oh, food for me is really a love language. So it's not necessarily about me eating it. It's about when I prepare it for people. That's how I show love. So eventually, though, I became a chef in my 30s. I, I, it was really 9/11 that that kind of inspired me to reevaluate my life and go. You know, I want to only do things that have heart, that have meaning. And I looked back and I was like, well, what did I love as a kid? Oh, I loved cooking. Well, maybe I should go to culinary school. And I did some research. But right from the get-go, I was a very different chef than I think a lot of other people t- tend to be. I was always more captivated and interested in. How do I move people's mm. health meter? Like, how do I actually move the needle, support their health and not just focus on comfort foods? So we know that we all eat comfort foods. We know that we gravitate towards them. That's very human, but they're not really that great for us. There's not many comfort foods that are actually good for us. So how can I make the, them still comfort foods, but make them healthier healthier? And when I went to culinary school, this is before it was even popular. I mean, now a lot of the stuff I learned, you know, 18 years ago is more mainstream, but like we were using cauliflower, for example, instead of potato, we were doing things Mm. with cellurac, you know, root vegetables in ways that no one was using them. So I really, I found a great school for what I wanted, did that. I eventually left working for celebrities and I started a meal delivery service in Los Angeles. I ran that for eight years. But that killed me, like my health, my health really suffered. And yes. I think anyone that's yes. an entrepreneur can identify that when you're running a business, it's like, even, and particularly one that's health oriented, you're, you're focusing so much on helping others that it's you who ends up suffering. And so when I had the chance, when we moved from LA and I sold the business, I was able to be a stay-at-home dad with our second child, and, which by the way, was the hardest work yeah. I've ever done. I want to kudos to all the single, like the, all the stay-at-home parents. I mean, the hardest work I've ever done. It was really, really challenging, but I got my health back. And as a father and as someone who was already thinking about how do I get nutrient-dense foods easily into people's diets, I started to really identify what are the yeah. most nutrient-dense foods. And it was organ meats, hands down. Anyone could do a search on it. And it's like beef liver is usually what comes up and it's always more nutrient dense than any other food. And it's not just a little more nutrient dense. It's like seven times more iron. It's like three times more potassium, whatever it's measured against. It's always considerably higher. But then it became, well, how do we, how do I get this nutrient dense food into people? Because there's three real main hurdles with organ meats. And I'm sure you're going to identify with these. One is that taste, the ick taste that people associate it with. Two, it's how do I cook it? Like It's overwhelming you know, like this big slab of liver. Like, what do I do with it? So that we've lost the culinary art around it. And then the third one is sourcing. A lot of people just don't know how to find them. So I am excited to share that I solved all three of those. Yeah. With, with my product pluck and, and yeah, so excited to share that with, with, with everyone as we.
0: Yeah. It's such a cool story. And honestly, it's not, it was an unexpected twist when I was reading your bio, where you're just like, I was a celebrity chef and now I sell organ meat product. I'm like, that is like, you just don't see that. Usually that's higher echelons <laughs> of the culinary world aren't like liver y'all and heart and tongue. So I think it's such a cool story. Plot twist. Uh,
1: that's fun. Yeah. That's so funny that you say it like that. I, I, you know, I honestly, it speaks to my mission. I am, I'm, I'm very clear that my, my mission nowadays is to really yes. support people in getting whole animals. That that is ultimately it. I feel like we are spending, you know, 50 billion plus dollars on supplements yearly. I understand why we are because, you know, our soils are depleted. We have modern stressors. There's lots of reasons environmentally and physically and mentally we need support. But I just feel like we're, we're not turning towards the thing that we should be, which is the whole animal. I mean, we're already slaughtering yes. these animals. Let's use all of it. Yes, I so think that that's so important. Benefit. Yeah,
0: especially for those of us interested in the regenerative ag world, which most of my listeners are, like, we have to acknowledge that there's, we're not just throwing things away for the sake of our cultural ick factor, because it is, it is about the whole animal.
1: Well, and we're really one of the only nations that doesn't really, you know, have organ meats built into the traditional diet. I mean, if you look at Mexico, they have menudo, which is, they use beef stomach. Scotland has haggis, which is sheep or calf heart mixed with uh, liver and lungs and, and oatmeal and seasonings. And it's usually even boiled in the animal's uh, stomach. There's blood sausage or also known as black pudding in Ireland, steak and kidney pie in the UK, a pate of course, in France. And then even if you go in the Southern US, you will find a dish, but it's very specific culturally. It's called chitlins. And that is, that is the intestines from a pig. But not, you know, you go to the West, you know, you go to the no. West or East Coast, no one's eating chitlins like that's a very specific in part of your US.
0: research. Because I, I love on this podcast asking the question, like, how did we get here and why did we leave some of these really important things behind? Like, have you come across any piece of our history as a culture in, in America, at least in the modern sense of when did why did we start associating organ meats with being gross or, you know, being beneath us? Do you have any inkling of when that really started to turn?
1: Yeah, I mean, throughout history, we've had an interesting relationship with organs. So it used to be something that we all ate. I mean, and I'm not talking just the liver, kidney. I'm talking really the whole animal. I mean, you talk to, grand, depending on how old you are, you talk to grandparents or great-grandparents, they probably ate brain even. Like they ate parts of the animal that we're not even touching now. So it's like when I say, oh, our ancestors ate it, I'm not talking about our Paleolithic ancestors. I'm literally talking about our grandparents, right? So this was a part of their diet. Now I think a couple of things happened. One is that a lot of uh, our parents and grandparents were forced to eat it. And so I think whenever you kind of go one extreme, you know, forcing someone to do something, when they didn't have the power, they go the opposite direction which is they don't yeah. pr- They don't push it at all. Like they don't want it and they and almost taints. It taints the product. But I think the bigger reason is because organ meats are cheaper. So anyone out there that is Fears, or not fears, but feels like eating healthy is expensive. I agree with you. It really is. When we advocate to eat 100% grass-fed beef, that can be like yeah. $25 a pound, you know, depending on what cut you're getting, right? Well, the same animal, the same 100% grass-fed animal, when you're buying their tongue or the organs, it's more like yes. 4 to $7 a pound. So you just cut the the price, you know, in a third, right? So it's, it's really, it's incredible how much cheaper they are. But what happened was after World War II, you had, well, so when World War II happened, you had men go away to war. The women started working when the men came back. Now you had two people in the household working. There was more money and there were, it was almost like a status symbol. Well, we're not going to eat this poor person's food, you know, organs. This is cheap. Let's pay for the, the, the better cut of meat. And so eventually more and more people doing that, do this, this socioeconomic status. You then have butchers like, well, we're not going to carry it. Why would we carry it if no one's buying it? So now you don't. You now it's not in your, your your sight line. So you're not seeing it at butcher shops, and then eventually you stop even thinking about them. You stop learning how to cook them or practicing the recipes you grew up with, you know. And so, and then you get to this place where we are now, which is yes. just utter unfamiliarity with it. Like if I told you that tongue, for example. So a lot of people have like Tuesday, uh, Taco Tuesday, right at home. A lot of people do that. So if I were to tell you that tongue, beef tongue is not only cheaper than the meat you're most people are using, it's also more nutritious and it tastes better. Would you believe me?
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Like most people be like tongue. It's like, but it is, it really is. It's, yeah, it's amazing. I had
0: Ashley Van Houten on the podcast to talk about this I don't know a while ago. And that was the first thing she recommended. I thought she was because I hadn't really tried anything prior to talking to her. And I was thinking she was going to recommend liver. She's like, no, no, start with tongue. And I'm like, no, really? And she and she said tongue, tongue tacos. And so we've done yeah, it. And it's-, it's it was so good. My seven year old asked me on a weekly basis, can we have I want more tongue? And like we, we fried the we I can't remember. We kind of boiled the tongue and then cut it and put it, fried it into cubes and seasoned it. And she ate almost the whole thing by herself. Yep. Like she was obsessed with it. It was good. And it was not anything like I expected, but it was really good.
1: Uh, yeah. And it's not yeah. as hard to cook as you would think. I mean, as you mentioned, you boil it first. And when you, so it, it has a sheath around it yeah. and it's a very thick skin. And so that's the part that you're intimidated by. But once you boil it, it just kind of peels away. And then underneath it is what's really close to a muscle. It's It's a muscle meat that is, that just is more nutritious because it, of yes. the activity yeah. that it has to do in our mouth. You yeah. Know? Or yeah. in the and cow's it, mouth, I should to say. To me, I cow's thought it mouth. tasted,
0: everyone's like, what did it taste like? I'm like, it's like beefier. It's like a better, it's like a richer beef, but not gamey and not yeah. offensive. But like, it, it's more, it's like more beef ta- I don't know how to describe it. More beef tasty than a, a pound of ground beef. So yeah.
1: Yeah. And it absorbs flavors really well. So any sauce that you add to it, it absorbs it really well. And, you know, here's a tip for everyone that's yeah, listening is like, okay, I'm going to try some tongue. Well, if you're still feeling feeling squeamish, what you can do, and a lot of people don't think like this, but what you can do is just, okay, let's just say you also make pork, right? You make carnitas when you're doing tongue hmm. So cook both. So you, you put in the slow cooker, you put this, the pork butt or shoulder, whatever you're cooking in the slow cooker, you add a tongue as well, slow cook it just like you normally would Then after that hour however long it's been, you know, hour and a half that it's been slow cooking, pull out the tongue, remove the sheet. And then like you said, you could fry it up. What I like to do is I cut it up and I stick both the the pork and the tongue. I stick them under the broiler. I spray I season them with a little salt and I stick them under the broiler and they get all crispy and then just cut them both up and mix them together. And no one will know there's tongue in there, you know? So there's, there's ways to kind of mask and hide these foods until you start to build the the palate because we a lot of people don't think about this but in the u.s so we have four four main flavors that are part of our or tastes that are part of our palate so we have sweet salty bitter sour well there's a fifth called umami that they discovered in like the 90s so those are the, our main five tastes well we skew mm-hmm. towards salty yep. sweet in the u.s so when you think of it like that, and I like to think of the palette like color wheel, right? So like if salty sweet is, I don't know, yellow and red, then you want to incorporate more blue and green, which is the sour and bitter. And even umami would, would be orange, let's say. So you want to incorporate more colors into your, your diet that are. So you want to look for foods that are more sour, maybe some cultured vegetables, maybe pickles, things like that sour products or, or even bitter bitter so i said sour was like pickles yeah. bitter might be like mustard greens or arugula or things like you know those kind of greens that are a little bit more bitter and then and then umami yeah. is like mushrooms have an umami tomatoes are umami and then organ meats organ meats are umami and it's just like you start incorporating those into the child's diet that is skewed towards salty sweet and you'll see them start to want different foods like you can actually you can actually support someone's diet through their palate. Interesting. It's kind of amazing.
0: So is it safe to say, because I was reading something the other day and I, I wish I could remember, but it was saying something along the lines of like, adding those bitter foods in is actually good for our health and, or it does something with our digestion that we're missing a lot. Is that, have you, is that true? Is that like, it's actually not just good for our palates, but it actually is good for mixing all those flavors together is good for our overall nutrition?
1: Absolutely. I mean, like, for example, anyone listening that does barbecue, we have, you know, we're recording this before 4th of July and, you know, with 4th of July or any kind of event whether there's an emphasis on barbecue, you you really do want to be eating like some kind of cultured product, like sour product with it, like cultured vegetables, because it helps to offset anything with a probiotic, Mm -hmm. natural probioticness to it is going to support the digestion of that berry charred meat. You know, most people they see blackened ribs and they're like, "Oh, those look so good," but that's actually yeah. extremely carcinogenic. Um, so you want to offset it with foods that are going to be more probiotic or that are going to offset that. And cultured vegetables is a perfect one. You see a lot of times, um, you see a lot of times with barbecue, um, yes. sour like coleslaw associated with it. But I, what I think is interesting is that coleslaw. I I honestly I think that the more ancestral way of doing it was actually, cul- which was culturing so, yeah, your, 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 your basic. cabbage. Yeah. But I think it eventually, yeah, sauerkraut like stuff. But then eventually I think people just got lazy or whatever. And then it became, yes. And then it became slaw. You know what I mean? It's still using cabbage, but it's just not culturing it. So the more you can skew towards the cultured or the sour, it's going to be better. But when I'm talking about the palate, I'm specifically talking about that I'd like to use this as an example, like, and maybe you remember this from being a kid. I, at least I, I, this is how I was raised. So a lot of us, when we're kids, our main beverage mm-hmm. is juices and sodas. And then when we start yes. drinking water, it tastes so plain. It's like, oh, this is gross, right? Same thing. Like I grew up eating Skippy peanut butter and Skippy put peanut butter. Once you've gone off eating peanut butter that has sugar in it and eating just natural peanut butter you realize like that Skippy is really like candy. It's it's so sweet, right? And so when I went to try the regular peanut butter, the non-sugar sweetened peanut butter, it tasted so plain and gross. But all you got, that's really just a transition point to your palate. It's because you've been so skewed towards sweet that when you don't have the sweet, it doesn't taste right, you know? But that's really just recalibrating your palate. And if you just give a little bit of time, and it usually takes like two weeks max, just a little bit of time to just adjust your palate, you will get to the point where, like it, for me, yeah. I can't even eat Skippy peanut butter yeah. now. It doesn't taste right to me, right? And that's the true flavor of food. Like, you know, most foods don't aren't created in nature where they have such extreme sweetness. They're not like that unless, I mean, even like, strawberries that haven't been hybridized are not as sweet as the ones that have been hybridized. Yes, yes. You know, so the more we can kind of pull back from that salty and sweet, those salty, sweet flavors and incorporate these other flavors, you'll see your palate will change. You'll become a more adventurous eater. But the key is you just remember, you don't have to go all or nothing. Like you can ease into it sort of the way you would feed a pet when you're changing their food. You start out with like, 90% of their old food and 10% of their new food, the same thing. Like if I was for anyone that's a new, new parent, what I would do is if I was introducing foods to my kid's diet, I would take the juice from the, from the sauerkraut. So from the culture vegetable, I take the juice and I would mix a little bit of that juice into Uh, their purees, just a little bit. And that will start to incorporate sour into their mash or whatever it is. You can add some butter to, you can do these other things but that you have to do it it don't weeks have to do much
0: it can be we can start to shift it yeah
1: two weeks you can change your you can totally shift it now the key though in those two weeks is you really got to like cut it out like like for we used to do this sugar control detox when i had my meal delivery service and we would cut out so in someone's diet we would cut out we would literally cut out sugar anything that is overly sweet starches like pasta's grains we would only use resistant starches like, like we would do butternut squashes and spaghetti squashes, but we didn't do many yams because those were even too sweet. So we pulled out things that were either converting your blood sugar quickly or were actively sweet. And in two weeks, mm. people lost weight and they couldn't do the things they were doing before. So people that were drinking like three glasses of wine a night, they couldn't even oh. finish a half a glass oh wow! because it was so sweet yeah. two weeks That's it was literally in two yeah weeks.
0: and we're so it's game we're so sugared and i it's i mean really i have a sweet you, so i'm not i was you know preaching to the choir here but the, i we're so sugared up as americans like you said it's in the peanut butter it's in the ketchup it's in all the things all the time so yeah when i have when i have done sugar detoxes like you said it's shocking what fine what what tastes sweet that didn't taste sweet before it's always it blows my mind
1: yeah yeah and so that just goes to show you that the That ultra packaged food that we're buying, you know, in the center of the grocery store, it's not found in nature, you know. So the more when you're going to the grocery store, obviously we we hear a lot, you know, shop on the outside of the market. That's where the fresh food is. But I even like to take it a little further. And I say, look for things that are ingredients versus things that have ingredients. So look for whole foods. And yes, I know it's a pain in the butt because then you start to have to make your own food. I totally get it. But that is the only way to truly be healthy. Yeah. You can't eat out all the time. You won't be healthy if you're eating out because restaurants and these product companies, these ultra-processed food product companies, they all have bottom lines and they're trying to maximize their profit. So how do you maximize your profit? Well, you choose the cheapest ingredients. Yes. So for example, yes. salt and sugar, are incredibly cheap. So that's why when you buy things in the grocery store they're very high in salt you know or they're very high in sugar because they know if i add this ingredient now the cost of this product will be cheaper for me but i can still yes. you know, charge them have you read the book it's them. by
0: michael moss it's salt fat sugar or sugar fat salt have you seen that one yes and that was just yes. so fascinating yeah. i mean i knew great that processed foods had lots of sugar and and salt and such but like To hear to the extent that the companies dial it in, so we almost it's almost irresistible to us with just how our taste buds are. I mean, it's it's very much calculated to get you to want to eat more potato chips or or needing to eat the whole bag of candy. And when I started to hear that, my contrarian self was like, "Oh no, you're not going to control my taste buds. I will control my taste buds." But yeah, it's it's hard to resist.
1: It really is. And I, and I stress to people like, like, so there's this Dr. Bill Schindler. He's a, he's a professor and he talks about, he he looks at the way humans have been ancestrally, how we ate and just the lifestyle of of humans from Paleolithic times and whatnot. And he, he, he has this great quote. He says, we humans are, are the only species in the world that Mm -hmm. need to look to someone else to tell us what to eat. And that, like, when I read that, I was like, oh, it hit me right, right in the sternum. Like, I was like, yep. that's incredible. That is incredible to think about. The only species in the world that doesn't yep. know instinctively what to eat. That's how lost we are. And so I always kind of share that with people to just help them realize, like, don't beat yourself up if you're making poor choices around your food. Yes, you can do better. But yes, the industry is set up against you that we have forces outside of ourselves that are influencing us and, and supporting our addictive quality, you know, human addictiveness and supporting these kind of messed up palates.
0: That is such a, stri- a striking fact. And so true. We, we don't know what to eat anymore. We're waiting for the experts to tell us, which most of the time I feel like they're still shooting in the dark, but they're, they have usually a motive to why they're telling us to eat what they're telling us to eat. Do you find when people start to get off the processed food, eat more ancestrally, cleanse the palate, that they can start hearing their body's nudges and they can, they can start to understand intuitively what to eat more.
1: Absolutely. hundred percent. So I, I had this experience that I think is really a testimony of exactly this point. So I, when I lived in LA, I got hired to support this restaurant, this, these, these people that were wanting to start a restaurant. And so I was going to develop the menu for the restaurant. And the way we started that process is we went to all their favorite restaurants in LA And they were showing me, okay, we, cause they wanted to have, for example, like a roasted potato in their restaurant, but they, so they took me to the place that had their favorite potatoes and said, okay, this is your benchmark. You either have to get the potatoes to taste this good or better. And so we walk into this restaurant and the minute we walk in, I'm hit with this smell of rancid oil that I know to look for. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I'm very aware of that smell because I don't eat those kind of oils. I don't, I don't do lots of fried food. Right. And they didn't smell it at all. And so then I knew immediately when I was going to get this dish, I knew exactly what it was going to taste like because of that smell. And I yeah. also knew that it wasn't going to be good. I just knew it. And I, that was my instinct as a chef and it came to the table. I tried it and exactly, I could taste like this. The, the poor oils that they were using. I could just, it had that rancid burnt taste. And I was like, oh, this is gross. And they're like, are you serious? Why do you think this is gross? I'm like, you guys, please like give me two weeks. Let me just cook for you for two weeks and then come back to this restaurant and you tell me if you think it's good. So then for the next two weeks, I pulled out any vegetable oils. I really just focused on real foods. We didn't do any processed foods. And they went back to the restaurant after now having shifted their palate and they were like, oh my gosh, you're right. It's disgusting. But we didn't know. And I'm like, I know because our palates, like most of us are living below normal. Like, like if normal is thriving, which we really should, our human body is miraculous. Like it is, it is the most amazing thing in the entire universe is our human body. I think that and the universe, I think are both just truly truly amazing and most of us are walking around below like not feeling good and just not aware of it though because we've been living in chronic disease for so long that we think it's normal you know and and it's the same thing with our palates it's the same thing with if you're finding that you are always addicted to certain foods it's usually due to an imbalance but if you don't know that then yeah you're 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 going to kind of keep doing the the status quo. So
0: fascinating. I I just love when the intuition kicks back in. Just what we've been given and we can finally listen to it again. It's a good feeling. So I'm interrupting this episode for just a second to give you a very important canning lid update. Because, well, people like you and me care about these things. Some of you may remember back in 2020 that I did a video that ended up going viral all about reusable canning lids. They were a great option for that season when you basically couldn't find metal lids in stores. It was a huge problem. There was a lot of drama about it. And this type of reusable lid worked pretty good. They had a slightly higher rate of failure, but they were a great option versus like just not canning at all. However, I recently heard from that company and because of supply chain shortages, they've had to move over to disposable gaskets. And so because of that, I've been looking for a different option. Now, last fall, when I was at a homesteading conference, I met the owners of a brand new company and they gave me some lids to try, but I was hesitant to tell you about them until I had a chance to put the lids to use and see how they really worked. However, eight months in, I've been using these lids exclusively and I am so impressed. The name of the company is Four Jars. And basically, they just kind of check all the boxes for me. These lids seal beautifully, they are heavy duty. You can purchase them in bulk for a discount. They have free shipping options and they're a small family owned company that really cares about their product and their customers. So I am so happy to be using these lids now. And if you'd like to give them a try, you can head on over to the prairiehomestead.com slash four jars, use code purpose 10 to get a discount. And I'll drop all that info down in the show notes. So now back to our episode
1: yeah, and you need to you need to provide like we we need to be kind to ourselves, too. There there has to be grace in all this, because when you're trying to change, you know, change something like that, like change that, that like listen more to your body. Well, you have to create some space from the addiction, you know, that most of us are feeling. So that means that, for example, like if you find next time that you're craving some kind of ice cream or candy or any dessert, right. Take a breath. Mm. and maybe go for a walk or drink some water. Just give yourself a moment away from that, that urge, right? Just pull out of that urge, drink some water first. A lot of times we, we confuse dehydration yes. with hunger. So drink some water and then just literally go for a walk around the block. Get, just get out of that headspace, get out of that environment. And then when you come back, see if you still crave that item. That's one step towards really starting to follow, you know, release yourself from that addictive pull of those urges that we're taught to, you know, we, we're taught, I know I'm kind of going off of this, but I'm so passionate about this stuff because I, as a father, I mean, it's something I think about a lot, but we are so taught, like, look at how our society is framed. When you have a good day, let's celebrate with food and desserts and like, and like sugar, right? If you have a bad day, oh, I'm yep. sorry you had a bad day. Yep. Go eat that ice cream tub. You know you know what I mean? Like we literally reward ourselves for good or bad days with food. And right there, that's, that is how you build in those kind of addictive, like, you know, uh, sugar addictions and or just addictions yep. to substances. That is how you build it is you start equating it to other things that are outside of, of what you actually are craving like what you actually want what your body needs it becomes like a well i should do yes, this instead totally. of i want
0: we condition ourselves that that's normal yeah
1: yes like i had a hard day i i deserve this yep. this whatever yep. this piece of cake or whatever it is like or uh, you know i worked really hard i just graduated i deserve this cake you know it's like it. it's just it's it's funny. I mean, but it starts from when we're little kids. Like, oh, let's celebrate your birthday. Let's go get a huge cake and let's completely overdose with junk food and like and sugary items. When ultimately, what do you really want? Like, what do we? What is the thing that we all truly, truly want as humans? If you break yes. it down, is we just yeah. want to connect. You know, we, we literally just want to connect with people. We want to be heard. We want to be in relationship. We just want to be in someone's life, like. As a father, I, and, and I'm I'm not saying I'm perfect at all, but I definitely recognize more and more that my yes. kids just want time yep. with me. Yep. That's the gift.
0: Amen. Yeah. So on the topic of kids and food, I think that's such a good topic. Just so I want to hit on it for just a minute, just because our, especially our American kid food culture is so, I don't even know what the word is, bland. And we have this idea, you know, if you go to a restaurant, there's a kid menu with the corn dogs and the chicken strips and like it's like we have this belief that kids can't eat anything with flavor or nutrition. So maybe both from your experience as a father and a chef, I think I, I, I know the answer to this, but I want to hear what your answer is. Can kids eat more flavorful food? And if they're already accustomed to dino nuggets and corn dogs 24-7, how can a parent help them transition into better options?
1: It's a great question. Yeah, and it does. So so I feel like I have to almost answer it in two ways. So one thing is, this, is if your kid, if you're a new parent, And even, you know, I think this actually could be the answer for both, even the parent that's kind of locked into dino nuggets, you know, that ultimately kids are, they're going to respond the most by what we model as adults, right? So what I would start right away, and this is for the person who's just had kids. Or the person that is that is already in it with their kids and their kids are picky eaters. I would start with only cooking one yes, meal yes. for the entire family. And it, there will be a transition that, you know, when your kid is like, well, you guys were having roast chicken, Where's where are my chicken nuggets? It's like, well, we're not doing that anymore. We're just going to cook one meal. And if you don't want to eat it, that's okay. But you can eat whatever's on the table that we've served. Eat as much or as little of yeah. it as you want. But this is dinner. Yeah. There is no other meal. And it's going to hurt at first. You're going to see your kids fight you. And they're going to, particularly if they know that if, they, if they're if they really loud and kind of violent, that they get what they want. If, they, if they've already been trained that way, it's going to be hard transition. But they will transition. I promise you, a kid will not go to bed starving for, you know, yeah. for yep. more than a couple days. Like they won't. They just won't. And and so you do have to kind of, depending on how far in you've gotten with that bad habit. I mean, I'm saying bad, but that's a judgment, but whatever that habit is that you're trying to change, if depending on how far in you've gotten with that, it's going to have to yeah. be, it's going to be harder. You know, if you haven't gone too far in, then you, you'll be good. But I think it's really important as parents, and I used to deal with this a lot with clients, was they'd be like, why is my kid addicted to Cheerios? And I'm like, well, Cheerios do not grow on trees. Like yeah. the kids are not finding Cheerios out and about when you're, you know, in the stroller. They're not picking them from the bushes as, as you stroll by. You're bringing them into the household. And so that's the first step. And as fathers, any fathers out there listening to this, like we are the biggest culprits of this. We are the biggest culprits because we connect with our kids over treats and food and ex- like food experiences. So um, whereas a mother might yeah. just hug their kid, right? They connect physically. We, we tend to be like, well, let's go get ice yeah. cream. You know, it's Papa's, you know, it's Papa daughter day. Like, let's go have a treat. And so we are the biggest culprits of just bringing the food, these undesirable foods into our households and or bringing those experiences into their lives. When if we just didn't do it, they yeah. wouldn't know, they wouldn't be exposed to it. And, and so it does require, I mean, what we're talking about is not easy. We're talking about changing our mindset. You know that we're no longer going to view treats and and these kind of like sugary junk food experiences as necessary to connect with our kids, and then it requires us not bringing in these things. Don't bring anything yeah. in your kitchen that you don't. They will want find it.
0: They will we feel that like thing out. Like you're uh, in charge. Can attest to that. yeah.
1: Yeah, and if and, and that and well, and that's the other hard truth is that okay once your kids are old enough they are going to yeah they're gonna eat what they want to eat right but that's that's even more important why you have to be able to create that space like the kid needs to know what does it feel like when i don't eat this junk versus when i do and the only way they're going to have that distinction is if your household is the sanctuary your household has to be the place where they don't get that junk and then that way when they get it back you know outside in the world and you have no control over it they go oh man, I just ate this thing and my body feels so icky, right? That's the only way you're going to get, you're going to teach your kid how to like, to listen to their body is they have to have, they they have to have a contrast. I I
0: love that. And then, yeah, I had a recent guest on, he was talking about how he, he lets those non natural consequences take effect with his children. And it was really inspiring. And just like, yeah, I mean, if you want to eat the giant bowl of ice cream, that's fine. But then you, you also get to feel what that does to your body and then you can help make better, that'll help you make better choices versus me just, you know, nagging all the time. Although I think the education on the parent side of things and having those conversations is still really crucial because sometimes kids are too small to be able to sort through that.
1: Yeah. Which, which even supports more. So like sometimes it's not even our words, it's just our actions, right? If if you don't, if your kids don't see you eating dessert after every meal, then they're not going to be conditioned to think that that's something they should do. Now, the other piece too is, and this is going a little deeper, you know, into the weeds with it, but is. Think about how do we best learn? You know, we, we're all we're all basically three types of you Your visual, your kinesthetic touch, or your auditory. Those are really the three main types we learn. So if you find your child responds more to visual, then right there that tells you if it's not in the house, they're not going to think about it. They're not going to crave it. If they're, for, they're more verbal, then yeah, explaining things to them is going to be more yes. supportive and of how the, they learn. The,
0: on the touch piece, because I have, you know, Homestead audience... Having kids involved in the inner workings of food production, whether it's the garden or the, the barn or the chicken coop, has been so crucial. Just like there's stuff my kids will eat from the garden that if I were to have presented it, you know, from the store or on a plate, it would have been like, eh. but because they watched it grow and they helped it grow, like they like eating raw onions. If it comes from the garden, they just eat a raw onion for, for no good reason. And I'm like, OK, but if I had done that from the grocery store, I don't think they would have had the same effect. So there's some sort of weird novelty <laughs> when they get to watch it grow, which is kind of magic because... I'm watching it my kids. I'm like, you guys oh, have I, pretty insane palates for your age. And I think it's the Holstead who has cultivated that.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think that that's that I, I absolutely incorporate that in my household as well. I even take it to the point of like when we're meal planning for the week, like I let my kids yeah. support that process. Like, so they're very much in, in control. Of like, so what are we going to eat today? And that might involve yes. walking to the garden first. Well, what do we have? You know, like, let's see, see first what we have. And and then we will go through cookbooks and magazines and my kids will just pick visually what looks yeah. good. And then that will yeah. be the meal plan, you know, that week. And then the other piece is, is incorporating them in the grocery shopping, you know, obviously setting some rules, like letting them know, like, hey, if, you know, yes. A, don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry. And then B, let them know right from the get go, we're only going to buy what's on our grocery list. And that's the power of meal planning, because when you meal plan, you create a grocery list. And we're only going to buy what's on that grocery list. So that means there's no impulsive purchases. You know, there's, oh, well, look yep. at that, you know, cake or look at that candy bar. Can we get that? It's like, no, yes. I'm sorry. It's not on our grocery list. You know, so it's just set the rules. Yeah. And set the boundaries, skill, you know, just you in all
0: the ways. Yeah. So good. So good. Okay. So I want to go back to organ meats a little bit because you have so many good thoughts on, on cooking and palate expansion. And I want to weave the organs back into this. So I guess my first question is, I'd love to know what's your favorite organ meat and how do you cook it what's your what's your absolute favorite dish
1: you know honestly i i created pluck Mm. because that's that is my favorite way of getting organ meats so i'll share i'll share first what pluck is and then i'll go into okay once then once i've done that then i go here so so pluck is a freeze-dried powdered organ meat seasoning so i take the freeze-dried powdered organ meats and i would take five of them liver heart kidney spleen and pancreas And I combine them with spices and herbs. So now you're basically getting that organ meat nutrition every time you season your food. So super easy. It makes food taste better. You'll be able to speak to that since I know you've tried it. And it's like, and there's just, there's no barriers. You don't even need to know how to cook. You could be eating out that day and like just sprinkle it on, bring it with you, right? So I love that personally. We And we use it all the time. My kids use it in everything. I use it on everything. And it's because it's easy. Like, and I honestly, like, even as a chef, like I still want what's easy. I mean, I want, I I don't, I don't want to spend hours and hours in the kitchen anymore. I've done, I mean, I've been in the field for so long. Like I've been a chef for so long and it's like, I'm kind of over that. Like I'd rather just do yeah. wh- what's easy, what's delicious. Just let's do that. But I also, of course, want it to be healthy. So once I've kind of eaten, you know, gotten my fill with pluck or, or, or if I'm just kind of like now I want to actually dive into organ, the first one I choose is a variation of what we already, mm-hmm. oh, well, I guess we talked about tongue, but what I focus on oh, is chicken okay. hearts. That would be the first organ I recommend people try. And that's because they're very mild. The heart of yeah. any animal is more muscle meat than, than organ. Like, you know, we call it an organ, but it's more like a muscle meat. But specifically with poultry, it's incredibly just like, it doesn't have a strong taste at all. Like not at all. And so what I do is when you go to buy chicken hearts, you'll usually buy them in a small container and there'll be like 10, 10, 15 hearts in that container because they're small. They're like the sizes of a small mushroom. And so I treat them like mushrooms. If I'm adding, if I'm making a spaghetti sauce or any kind of sauce, what I'll do is I will only add a couple of those chicken hearts. I'll chop them up so they don't look like a heart and then I'll throw them in the, in the sauce and no one knows they're in there. Not a single person. So you just make sure you're not the whole, you're not doing all 15 hearts. You're maybe doing four. Yeah.
0: I haven't thought of that one,
1: you know, but chicken hearts would be the next, like the easy entry point to eating more organs. And then I would say the next step is to, is to go buy a beef liver. Now, the reason why I'm emphasizing Mm -hmm. the beef liver is because it's incredibly nutritious, right? But here's the thing. When you get it, it's probably going to be frozen yes. and it's very large. So it's going to seem overwhelming. So what I advise is you don't defrost it because the only part that's overwhelming is when you defrost it. So keep so, it frozen.
0: Let's do I don't
1: know. Thank you. So keep it frozen. And what you do is when you're doing like ground meats, pull it out and just grate some into your ground meat. And then... Now and then put it right back in the freezer, so you never Mm. defrosting it, so it's never overwhelming. But then you're grating a little bit of that liver. You know, let's just say you have a like a pound of ground meat. You're probably adding maybe two tablespoons. You're not adding that much, and and then basically add it to the meat. Once again, no one will know. This could be for hamburgers. This could be a sauce, whatever you want, a bolognese. But just just do about two tablespoons of grated liver, put it back in your freezer. Now it's not overwhelming. Like you just pull it out every time you want to use it. Because
0: the liver can be pretty strong. So that you find that's a good ratio in terms of getting those hesitant organ meat eaters to be okay with that.
1: Yeah. So as long as you keep that ratio to about 25% max. So Most, there's a lot of blends you can buy that are already have the organs in it. Like Force of Nature has one that has, I think, yeah, we sell one too with our grass liver in it. Yeah. But that, and they put, Mm -hmm. oh, you do? Okay. And what percentage are you guys putting in?
0: Ground, yeah, beef.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's the way to do it. So anything under 25%, you're not going to notice the taste and you you won't notice the change in texture as well. But I find when you go over that, then, then yeah, it kind of starts to come in. Now, some people can really be really sensitive to to the taste of organ meats. Like I, I know p- some people that have tasted force of nature, even and force of nature is only ten percent, but they've tasted mm-hmm. that when they're like, yeah, I can taste the iron. Now, I I would offer that they may be projecting yeah. that, like they may because they know it's in there, they're looking for it, so that could be psychosomatic. But the other mm-hmm. thing is, is and this is why I love eating yes. my nutrition versus yes. swallowing a capsule. This is why I love eating my nutrition is because your body, maybe she, this person who I was talking to, maybe mm. they already have enough iron. Like maybe, maybe they don't need more and their body is saying, you know what, I'm good. I don't, I don't need more organs right now. So what, when you eat your food, you get an immediate, like an immediate communication of whether your body needs more or less of whatever you're eating. Like think yeah. of salt. If I put salt in your tongue, immediate, like there's no delay. But if you swallow a salt tablet, then maybe 20 minutes later you feel bloated and you're like, yeah. why am I bloated? Oh, I got too much salt. So one is the delayed kind of guesswork communication oh, and one is working. That's so good. I box. think I was
0: just, it might've been from Redmond salt. I know you use Redmond in pluck, which I made me love it anymore, even more. Cause I love Redmond salt company, but I, they have like this electrolyte mix called relight that has some salt and stuff. And I, I think I was reading on their social media that yeah. like, if you drink it and it tastes extra salty, then you might not be needing that right now. But if you drink it and it doesn't taste salty, then you probably need to be drinking it. So I thought it's that same kind of thing. We're just giving that instant feedback, which is so important.
1: Yeah, that's and it's something once again, people don't talk about as much, you know, that the importance of eating our our nutrition. We're so locked into saving time and like, you know, guessing kind of kind of self self diagnosing and that we just start taking all these capsules. Well, here here's kind of a scary thought, and I don't have proof of this, but I have heard through different circles that it's true, like we're, we're eating so many capsules and because it's not always clear that the companies are using 100% gelatin in those capsules, sometimes yeah. you get microplastics in those capsules, particularly yeah. when you're buying very cheap supplements, right? And so what they're finding is like people in these cadavers of people that have passed, they're finding Oof. all these undigested Oof. capsules that, plas- yeah. that microplastics don't break down. So- That's something to think about, too, is like you just a lot of these businesses are not regulated. You know, you don't know what's in the food. I mean, they did. There's always those watchdog companies that are sometimes will do stuff like, let's check all the avocado oils in the stores. And then they'll find like only two of them actually have avocado. The rest are cut with other stuff. That stuff is happening all the time. We don't. The FDA, the USA, they are not capable of of truly like monitoring everyone all the time and aggressively they just don't have the they yeah. don't have the way the system to do that and so you are stuck trusting that companies are choosing the right ingredients are doing the right things and sadly yeah. they're not all on in integrity and that's why once again you're going to always hear me say this you've got to make your own food because you're the only you're the one that gets to choose the ingredients when you're making your own food you're not relying on another yes f- another and i mean yeah going
0: through you. the process of trying to vet all those companies is it feels to me that feels more exhausting because some of the detail you have to go into and you don't always, like you said, you don't always get that information straight up. They're not regulated. They can do some sneaky things with labeling. That feels more time consuming than just yeah making it yourself or growing or even growing it yourself if you can, and if you're in the right spot. So yeah, you're you're spending the time one one way or the other.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that kind of speaks to another thing too. Like I call it, you don't fall asleep at the cart when you're grocery shopping. But basically, you you always want to make sure that if you are buying a processed food, that companies get bought and sold all the time. And so let's just say that company may have started out being very yeah. high high integrity, high quality ingredients, but then they got bought by a bigger company and that bigger company eventually changes those ingredients. So if you're buying something... That you've been buying for many years, you should still be reading the ingredient list just to make sure it, it is yes. it is what you thought it was. Yes. You know, What motivated it you buy it previously? Yeah, everybody gets bought and, they and yeah, they really I hear do that every
0: change. once in a while, the big company buys the little organic company and it it go, all the good stuff kind of morphs in a not great way. So I want to play devil's advocate advocate for a minute because you mentioned you know adding a little bit of chicken heart, adding a little bit of liver, and then I'm thinking about pluck because pluck is just a sprinkling generally so what if someone's listening and they're going okay cool but like does that really matter for the nutritional aspect am i am i going to get enough with just a few chicken hearts or a sprinkle of pluck like does it really like count for anything
1: i love this question you probably already noticing i tend to think a little differently i ask questions in a way that a lot of people aren't typically asking them and I, i think i attribute it to just my who i am but also just how long I've been in this yes. field. I've just learned that trends come and go, you know what I mean? Diets come and go. And that's why I'm always more emphasizing. I'm less emphasizing a specific diet and more emphasizing real food because that to me is the mainstay. But I love this question because I think it, it says a lot that we're focusing yeah. on how much of something. So if you look at any part of any part of our existence as humans and think about, Anything you're working on, whether let's say you're someone who's working on intimacy, let's say you're someone who's working on a new language, what is it that moves the needle of you as a human? Is it is it is it like if I'm working on intimacy, would be hugging you for 24 hours one day a month? Would that work? Make make no, me more no. intimate as a person? <laughs> yeah. Or would me giving would me giving one hug every day for an entire year yeah, absolutely support me being yeah, more intimate? Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like we focus on how much of something, but really what we should be asking ourselves is how often they, they more and more how have, have proven that the thing that moves the needle is not like the intensity of the exercise all in one day. It's actually, yes. if you just even go on walks daily, after you eat meals, you will move your health needle more than the person that goes to yes. the gym yep. twice, a, twice a week. And, and so it's really about that. But the other, the other point I like to make is like, okay, and you can go on our website and we have a graph of this on our homepage, the eatpluck.com that basically we're showing, okay, these are the, we're showing, this is the most popular seasonings. It's like Lowry's and Old Bay and Goya. Those three are the most popular seasonings in the U S and it shows you what they have in them, like in terms of the nutrition that's in yeah. them. And you'll see, it says none, 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 none. And then there's really, there's tons of salt and then. They sure. also have some sweetener, some sugar, right? And then you look at ours and you'll see every vitamin mineral that we were, we were c- comparing to these other seasonings is ticked off. There's something in ours, except there's no sugar. That's the only one that says none, whereas theirs has that. And so right there, I always like tell people like you, we're not requiring you to to do a new habit. Like we already season our food. All I'm saying is use this. And now you are getting micro dosing frequently because you're using it on every meal, yes. which is cumulative effect. And you're getting things that you were not getting when you were using Lowry's or whatever the seasoning is that you're lemon pepper, whatever it is, you, you're getting these nutrients, these micronutrients that you were not getting in there. So even mm-hmm. if you're moving the needle a little bit each day, wouldn't you rather do that than use things that are harming yourself that's such a little a good, bit. That's such a
0: good point. And I think human, we humans are so, we just love the all or nothing. Like I, I even say that in the homestead world, people are like, oh, but if I can't move to a hundred acres with a milk cow, I guess I can't homestead. And I'm like, no, 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 you can like bake some bread or you can plant a basil plant. Like it's, it's really about those little tiny actions that add up in a really big way.
1: Totally. I mean, like, look at how, uh, I, I mean, look at how we are with food, right? If, if someone's, let's say on a very restrictive diet and then they have a bad day where they eat, yeah. you know, something off that diet. What is the statement they make? Well, since I did yes. this, I might fall as well off just wagon, spend it's the whole over. Day eating yeah, whatever yeah. I want. Right. It's all or nothing. Yeah. Right. It's this kind of what woe is me. And like, I guess I just have to throw everything out the table today. And then you wake up the next day and now you're feeling that, you know, now your addictive cravings are back and now you keep going. And, and then that's how you fall off the wagon in terms of whether it's drugs or food or whatever. Um, you know, this other the other thing I want to sh- kind of point out around microdosing is I like to look at it from the negative perspective. Uh, so yes. glyphosate, which you're probably very familiar with as a homesteader, it, it was created by Monsanto back in the fifties and it was put in Roundup, which was a weed killer. Well, that had glyphosate in it and it was sold to America as it's just, it's extremely micro amounts. It's not yep. going to affect human health. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And Then what happened is they, everyone sprayed everything with it. And eventually they even created seeds that wouldn't grow unless it was sprayed on it. And so now you, you had this micro amount that was used often enough where now currently in modern times, we cannot get rid of it. It's in our water. It's in our food. It's in our air. It's in our soils. They're finding it in breast milk. They found it in hummus. Like we cannot get rid of it. And in in all intents and purposes, it's killing us. We, a lot of chronic disease is coming from glyphosate, like from the glyphosate in our bodies. So, that is an example of like microdosing yeah. can work. You can work for the negative. And yeah. I just want it to work for the positive. Cause I know the thing, I know that if it's easy and delicious and it doesn't require a new habit, then you're going to do it. Right. And it's like, The thing that moves the needle is the thing you're doing the most often.
0: And like, what is it called? Like habit stacking, where if you're already doing something, just like hook the new habit into it. And and that makes it easier. And that's really what you're doing. You're just replacing whatever you're getting at the grocery store with MSG, that seasoning mix. You're getting rid of that and putting something that's actually nutritious. So it's not like it's a whole new thing you have to adopt. You don't have to go, you know, do something crazy, buy a new machine. You're just incorporating into what you're already doing.
1: Exactly. And, and as a parent, I know you can identify this. It's like we don't right. need anything yeah. that makes good our enough. lives we're harder. Good. We, we really don't. Like life. Yeah, we're good. So just give me something that I know my kids are going to like. And okay. kids love. I mean, it's off the charts. They love it. And we were talking about this earlier when we first started that I think they love it, not just because it tastes good, but it, it's because their body, they are in touch with their bodies. Their bodies know exactly what it needs. And they haven't, you know, they haven't been influenced and tainted the way we have as adults. And so I've found when, when kids get a hold of pluck that and I, they can't yeah. stop eating it because their, their body's like, I can attest give to me that. More. We, give me more, we, give you sent us some
0: of, I think you sent us one of each flavor and my kids were like, what is this? So I'm like, well, it has, cause they're not afraid of organ meats. I'm like, it has some organ meats in it. It's a powder. And they're like, oh, okay. I'm like, do you want to try it? And so we opened the bags and they started tasting. It. I think my son put someone on popcorn. And they were like, oh, this is so good. We want to try the next one. Can we try, can we open all of oh, them, we so try every single on one popcorn. of them. So they yeah, immediately, like, there was no transition period for my kids. It was like all in. So, yeah.
1: That's awesome. And I love it on popcorn. I, to me, it gives so much flavor to certain foods like popcorn. I can't, yeah, I can't eat popcorn without it now. You, you know what I mean? Cause yes. it's popcorn yes. tastes so yeah, plain so good. without it.
0: Okay. okay. So that brings us to a great. Natural Clothes, can you give everybody the scoop on where to find it? I know your website's eatpluck.com and just give us the whole the whole spiel on where to where to grab it from you.
1: Absolutely. So yeah, you can go to our our site at eatpluck.com. You can also oh, go to Amazon. We are sold on Amazon. And, and and if you're just curious if it's sold in an area near you, we are in some retail, not a lot. We're we're kind of more focused on e-commerce, but we have on our website a location area and you can see if where we are in a retail or clinic near you, but for the most part, you'll find us on our website, and oh, and
0: awesome. we have
1: lots of recipes too. Even uh, you mentioned yeah. Ashley Van Houten, like there's a re- there's she we have on our site a beef t-
0: we I jerky love that recipe, recipe from Yeah, it cookbook. That's it takes so guts. good. We've made that several times. It's an and awesome it's so recipe.
1: Good. Yeah. So what we did is every recipe on our site utilizes pluck as well, but that is one of the recipes. And we have tons of, you know, where like recipes where you can use organ meats in addition to the recipe, like we show you that, but it's also, we just show you really great ways to get pluck into your meals. And, and what's kind of fun, and I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but I assume it's because the way your kids reacted to it already, you're going to, is we get told a lot that people, they're like, oh, I didn't do anything different. It's a meal that they make every other week in their household. You know, one of their staples, and they're like, I didn't do anything different, but use pluck yeah. in my family. That I freaked out. They were like, oh my gosh, it's so good, and they wanted seconds, and they yeah. had never previously wanted seconds of the meal for sure. So yes. I was like, oh, that's Spicing a up win. the stuff that's you're already
0: cool. making is a big one because sometimes I mean, I I get into the meal planning ruts too. Yeah. So if you can add a little extra oomph to that, it's always a good thing. Yeah.
1: And we'll make sure that that you, your okay. your audience has a discount as well. So look in the yes, show notes. Yes, awesome. And, and, we'll stick
0: all that info, a guys, discount. a link and the discount code down there. So check it out. And just, you guys will really like this. I think many of you I know are, are kind of like I was. You're, you're wanting the organ meats. You understand the benefits. You're just not quite sure how to, to incorporate. And this is a really great transition period or a pr- transition product. Honestly, beyond transition, it's just good all the way around just for flavor and nutrition. So absolutely recommend it. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I call it like the gateway to getting organized. Yeah. It takes a lot of that trepidation out, which is really important. Thank you. So,
0: yeah. Well, James, thank you (laughs) so much. This was fantastic. I appreciate your time and your knowledge, and it was just a really good conversation. So, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh.